we attach a lot to chronological age, but it's really just a number. Health span should be the name as far as what our focus should be. What are some of those key supplements that you would recommend around longevity? Welcome to Commune. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today we're exploring human longevity. Now the idea of extending human lifespan is not a new one, but as medical science leaps forward, the notion of making it to a hundred seems more realistic than ever. Now there are approximately a hundred thousand centenarians in the United States today, but that number is expected to double by 2040 and quadruple by 2050. However, this elongation of life is balanced against a stark reality. Over the past decade, life expectancy has actually declined 2.8 years in the United States from 78.9 to 76.1. And this trend began well before COVID put its wicked foot to the gas. So indeed, we are seeing a cohort of people living longer while the average American lifespan is increasingly truncated. More problematic than the decrease in average solar orbits per capita lifespan is the average duration of our underlying health span, the period of life spent in good health, free from the chronic diseases and disabilities of aging. In the modern West, life expectancy has become concomitant with sick expectancy. 60% of Americans suffer from at least one chronic disease, the most prevalent of which are heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's and dementia, respiratory conditions, and fatty liver disease. 40% of Americans are managing multiple simultaneous chronic diseases. 80% of people 65 years of age have one or more chronic conditions. And if you're lucky enough to have made it to 80, on average, you have five. The average American spends the final 16 years of their life limping through their existence, experiencing a reverse alchemy in which our golden years have been converted to the base metals of wheelchairs and bedpans. This epidemic of disease has myriad knock-on impacts, none of them good. Now, obviously there is the pain, the decrepitude, the immobility and cognitive decline that must be endured by the sick individual. Now this suffering then radiates out to friends and family members who must provide care, sometimes over decades to infirmed loved ones. Additionally, there is the staggering societal expense. America currently spends $4.5 trillion on sick care. Approximately 18% of the total GDP. And this is primarily treating the symptoms of preventable chronic diseases with cocktails of pharmaceutical drugs. If this trajectory continues, domestic healthcare expenditures will increase to $10 trillion per year 
by 2040. And that will threaten to bankrupt the economy. So while some of us are living longer, it begs the question, for what purpose? Is it actually possible to thrive into our 80s, 90s, and beyond? Can we, as Dr. Mark Hyman quips, die young at an old age the way they do in the blue zones, the places in the world with purportedly the longest life and health spans? Throughout history, our perception of longevity has undergone a remarkable evolution. In ancient civilizations, a long life was attributed to divine reward for virtuous and ethical behavior. However, with advances in medical science, we gained a deeper understanding of the complex factors and mechanisms that determine our lifespan. Advances in healthcare, public health measures, specifically sanitation, and general improved living conditions all played pivotal roles. Now, since the mid 20th century, our understanding of genetics has exploded. We witness groundbreaking discoveries from unraveling the structure of DNA in the early 50s with Watson and Crick to completing the ambitious Human Genome Project. As a result, we realize that genes exert a significant influence on human traits, susceptibility to disease, response to treatment, and other inherent characteristics. However, the revolutionary field of epigenetics introduced a new appreciation for how our genes function. Gene expression is influenced by environmental factors and lifestyle choices. In other words, our fates are not predetermined. We have agency. So while the fixed underlying nucleotide sequences of our DNA govern around 25% of our lifespan, the remaining 75% is shaped by the environment. Factors such as diet, physical activity, stress levels, social connections, economic status, exposure to violence, the air we breathe, and the products we use, all these things impact gene expression and subsequently overall well-being. Now, this emerging understanding of epigenetics and its relationship to longevity reminds us that we hold the key to unlocking longer, healthier, and more fulfilling lives. Now, today's episode is a series of excerpts from conversations I've had with today's experts on the topic of longevity. So first up is Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Dr. Fitzgerald is actively engaged in clinical research on epigenetics and longevity using a diet and lifestyle intervention developed in her research and in her practice. Her first clinical study, get this, published April 12th, 2021 in the journal Aging, demonstrated a three-year reduction in bioage in middle-aged men after an eight-week DNA methylation supportive diet and lifestyle protocol. Now, her latest study, published March 22nd, 2023, also in the same journal, suggests similar results are possible in middle-aged women. Wow. So without further delay, here's Dr. Kara Fitzgerald on the topic of longevity. So I think that we all have a vague sense for what might help us live longer, mm -hmm. but the notion that you've actually been able to connect 
certain choices or protocols with specific mechanism, I think is really, really compelling for people and helps people then make those decisions and reify them in their own life. So I'm excited to dive into that. But since um, we're not all doctors, I'll raise my hand and certainly plenty of the people listening are not doctors. Um, I think at the outset, it would be helpful to scaffold our conversation in a little bit of definitional work. Sure. So, um, so first off, can you take a moment to explain the difference between biological age and chronological age? Yeah, yeah. So chronological age is, you know, the number of birthdays we've celebrated, the number of trips around the sun. We can't do anything about chronological age. Um, we tend to associate chronological age with, you know, health and lifespan and all and 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 uh, you know always and, and generally perceive the older somebody is, the more likely they are to get sick, et cetera. So we we attach a lot to chronological age, but it's really just a number. In fact, I would argue that we want to let it go. By far, the more important number is our biological age. So this is how fast our body's actually aging. Um, we have been trying to measure biological age probably since Ponce de Leon, like time immemorial, we've probably been doing that. But uh, in fact, now that we're in what we call the omics era, where we can, you know, we can look at our genes, we can see how our genes are expressed, it's a whole new world into being able to really rather sensitively and extraordinarily measure how fast we're aging. And this is changing the face of science, Jeff. Like I can't even underline how significant it is, capital letters, how we think about and how we conduct science given these new tools will forever be different. Hmm. It's, it is fascinating. And I want to get into some of the methods that you discuss in your book for actually measuring mm -hmm. bio age. I know that there's a whole number of different clocks mm -hmm. um, associated with that. But before that, I wanted to uh, untangle a little bit more uh, definitional work. So yep. there's a tremendous amount of fuss uh, made about life expectancy, mm -hmm. um, which over the course of the 20th century uh, grew significantly. I think in 1900, yep. it was somewhere around 46. And by 2000, it was somewhere around 77. And that varies per, on gender. And I'm talking specifically about in, in the United States. Um, I, it's also worth noting that the average life expectancy has actually gone down over the past couple of years, even yeah. before COVID. And yep. maybe we can dissect some of the, the reasons why. Um, but lifespan doesn't equate to health span. And you right. elucidate this beautifully in the book. So can you delineate a bit between lifespan and health span? Yeah. So lifespan, I guess, is you know, we could measure by basically when we die. There's no association with health. So we have done a great job in this country extending lifespan. We, and probably initially, you know, in the early turn of the century, of course, that was also extending health span. Like we developed antibiotics, you know, we were no longer dying of infection and infections, you know, and, and, and we were suffering much less. So there were extraordinary early, um, you know, her medical changes that allowed for a longer life. Um, but today, 
lifespan may be uh, living in a skilled nursing facility, you know, propped up on pillows with mm -hmm. dementia. So you're not present. You're alive technically, but your quality of life is just, you know, remarkably compromised. We're seeing this in our country quite a bit. I mean, our healthcare spend, the amount of years that we spend with significant illness, thinking about, you know, the drugs that we're taking, the kind of uh, medical care and interventions that we require is extraordinary. I mean, on average, the last 16 years of our lives, we're sick. Most of us with mm. multiple significant illnesses. I mean, if that's not the biggest, deepest sort of call to action, I mean, isn't it, it's just unfathomable, right? To think about your final 16 years, you know, being ill. Yeah, so, you talk about that in the book of like, we had 63, I think, was the yeah. the age that you give. And then the next 16 years is riddled with yeah. neurodegenerative disease or mm -hmm. diabetes or cardiovascular disease, you know, kind mm -hmm. of the big killers. Cancer. And sometimes, yeah. yeah, and sometimes multiple at the, yes. at the same time. Correct. You know, you have, I think you included um, one of my heroes, uh, Atul Gawande, he had a, you, a graph from uh, his book, Being Mortal. Can okay. you describe just, I know this is an audio platform, but maybe you could describe kind of what those graphs tell us about modern lifespan. Yeah. So back back in the day, again, turn of the century, we, we, we lived largely a good life, but it was short, you know, and then we died kind of, you know, relatively quickly. Um, what he describes is a descent into illness. So rather than sort of a straight line across, the line is dropping down, you know, commensurate with ill health. Um, mm -hmm. And it withers eventually to death. So it's lifespan without health span. So early, you've got a short but solid health span and then basically you die. And then in the modern world, we see a deterioration of our health over time. Um, and, you know, a lot of suffering in those final years. And what he argues, and this comes from James Free's work out of Stanford in the 80s, is that we can live robustly um, till the end of our years here, whatever those are, uh, and then die, you know, peacefully and relatively quickly. And we should be able to do that with, you know, straightforward lifestyle and lifestyle changes. So hmm. that would be a straight, strong, healthy line. And then, you know, kind of a precipitous, but, you know, hopefully painless and peaceful death. Yeah, I think this slowly descending line, um, like you say, uh, is concomitant with a tremendous amount of suffering. Yes. Um, but it's well, and also... Not just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but it's also... Well, and expense. <laughs> yes. And, and it's not just suffering for the individual, of course, because, mm. you know, the individual is probably relatively drugged at that point. It's suffering for the caregivers who are largely going to be family. You know, they may be... Mm. A, yes, and the expense. So if you... You're 
your money is going to be going towards big pharma and big, you know, and hospital and skilled nursing care for, you know, and, you know, home, home care workers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, you do such a good job in your book underscoring this idea because a lot of people associate this kind of longevity movement um, with kind of the Silicon Valley biohacker, for example, and that it's very geared towards the individual. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you do a fantastic job outlining the social or the societal dimensions of actually living a healthier life or having a longer health span. Because I think at this point, we spend somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 trillion on quote unquote, sick care. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, the work that you're up to is really trying to undo that. Yes. And, um, and not only have uh, impacts that extend to the individual, but by extension, the individual's families, as you say, and then our whole kind of medical complex yes. that, that we have. So, yes. um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's something that's fascinating. So maybe, let me, can yeah, I, yeah. can I just color a piece in for this? So, please, please. so yeah. biological age, not chronological age, but by how fast our bodies are basically breaking down, um, is the biggest risk factor for the chronic diseases of aging. And so, you know, again, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, et cetera. Biological aging is the biggest risk factor. Uh, so when we're aging faster, we're increasing our risk for these illnesses. And I just, you know, a quote from Morgan Levine puts uh, biological age or aging as a profoundly bigger risk factor for lung cancer than smoking. So just to give you, put it into context of how potent biological aging is. If we can change the biological age trajectory, so going back to James Free's work, if we can improve health span, to your point, um, we, so we will, by extension, we should, by extension, A, reduce the risk of all of those illnesses and reduce the spend. So reduce this incredible amount of money that's going uh, towards, you know, these heroic, it's not healthcare, it's just lifespan extension. And I want to yeah, give you... You, and you may be heading towards this already in your questions, but they've calculated, so David Sinclair out of Harvard and colleagues um, working with him, you know, just crunched some numbers and put a year improvement at a $38 trillion savings and maybe in an order of magnitude greater. So if we could improve biological age or, or, or lifespan by 10 years, that would be like 380 trillion. I mean, the savings of focusing on biological age is just astronomical, the potential. Yeah, it's jaw dropping. I mean, I think we're talking right now, uh, the scale, it's like 120 million people in the United States are diabetic or pre-diabetic. So you just think of that and that's just diabetes. Yeah. I mean, so it is, um, so the scale that we're talking about, and boy, could we redirect that into organic and regenerative agriculture to actually hit the first, yes. hit, hit the front side of the equation instead of the back side yes. of the equation, 
boy, that would uh, um, address all sorts of issues. I think a psychic, a collective psychic shift in our country, and it really in the world needs to happen where we realize that we're driving the car, you know, that it's our Mm. genes are not our destiny, and that in fact, our quality of life, our health span is in fact up to the choices that we make. We are not victims of you know, the illnesses our parents or grandparents uh, succumbed to. Or, you know, conversely, if we, you know, people who have uh, longevity in their family may think that they're impervious. Uh, The reality is the choices that we make day in and day out are influencing greater than any genetic uh, hand-me-down, how well we live. And so, there is just a sea change needs to happen where we light on that and it changes how we are amen so can you outline some of the methods that you leverage and other people leverage for actually measuring biological age yeah so we're again we're talking about gene expression um we're not looking at the DNA directly. Um, we're looking at biochemical marks on and around the DNA that allow genes to be turned on and genes to be turned off. Just ba- a little bit of background, maybe some folks will be interested. Mm-hmm. We mapped the genome the, in early 2000s, and we really thought that um, it would answer our questions, that it would be the Rosetta Stone for diseases. This is why you have heart disease. This is why you have dementia. Obviously, you know where this is going. We realized, in fact, that's not the case at all. Um, In fact, it doesn't. There is no one gene, one disease relationship, except for the rare uh, exception. And that really focused attention on the field of epigenetics. So epi above genetics, the gene, and that's all the interest... intricate uh, biochemical happenings that allow genes to be turned on and off. And one of the most studied, actually the most studied um, and one of the most resilient is something called DNA methylation. DNA methylation is um, when a methyl group, so this is a carbon and three hydrogens, is placed on a promoter region of a gene. So that promoter region will allow it to be turned on or conversely turned off. When there are a lot of methyl groups on this promoter area, uh, that gene will be inhibited. It just can't open up and be turned on. Conversely, when those methyl groups are not on a given promoter region, that gene can be turned on. Um, Starting with Steve Horvath, and there's a few people who came a little bit before him, but really Steve Horvath out of UCLA created the first Um, biological age clock, looking at patterns of methylation happening on the DNA. And um, his first 2013 clock, um, it's called the pan tissue clock, because you can use different specimen like blood and um, saliva, et cetera, et cetera. But he created that and released it in 2013. And he was able to reliably predict um, age from in utero, where it would actually be a negative number, up to centenarians. Uh, And it, it was correlative. You don't want it completely correlative to chronological age because then it would be only useful to tell age, right? Chronological right, age. Right. 
Yeah. Um, but it was correlative with chronological age to 0.96. So it was really rigorously associated with chronological age. And it turned out that this first clock, and there are subsequent generations of clocks, but this very first clock was more predictive of morbidity and mortality um, than chronological age again. So it, it was in 2013 with that first publication that we really sort of entered the era of, you know, being able to assess biological age. Got it. And um, since the initial Horvath clock, I think there's been a few other iterations. Yeah, uh, there's second generation yes, and yeah. maybe even third generations. Yeah, that might be more predictive. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting and an evolving field. So um, we will be telling age of different tissues. So, you know, liver age, brain age, et cetera. Um, telomere, even DNA methylation of telomeres, which were the marker for biological age once upon a time, but they've since been supplanted by this science. Um, we can look at morbidity or even there's a, a clock called the Grim Age, which predicts mm -hmm. mortality, you know, better than, again than chronological age by a lot. So yeah, we're, we're really sort of busting into this new era and continuing to refine and, and evolve. So it's, it's, it's very exciting. It's really exciting. I know that you wear a continuous glucose monitor because I've heard you talk about it. I wear one too. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been fascinating and very, um, I mean, w the risk is that one can become uh, um, neurotic yeah, <laughs> or fundamentalist yeah, right. neurotic. Yeah, you yeah. talk about that um, uh, and we can maybe um, later uh, explore that whole idea of I think you called it orthorexia, which is a whole interesting, uh, I guess, uh, kind of when you become a little too neurotic about your own health. But um, I'm sure that there are people working on developing what would be the equivalent of a continuous glucose monitor for uh, DNA methylation age. And that's going to be incredible to yeah. be able to see on a, on a snapshot, you know, moment to moment or hour by hour basis kind of you know, how your mechanism, how yeah. this pattern of energy here yeah. <laughs> is, is interacting with its environment across, you know, stress and food and yes. toxins and, and all this. So I want to move back to DNA methylation because I want to make sure that this is very, very clear to, um, to everybody listening because it's so foundational to what we're going to talk about and to your work. So I think even, I think we need to go even upstream from there and yep. do some biology 101. So go back to, to DNA and what are the, the primary function of DNA? So do you want to take a swing at that? Sure, sure, <laughs> we sure, can, sure. We can collaborate on it. Yeah. So in the nucleus, in the middle of our, you know, the little nucleal compartment in the middle of our cell houses our DNA, which is, you know, comprised of just four bases. And these guys um, form genes, and we've got about 23,000 or so. Um, and just a minority of those will go on to make protein. So um, genes code for the various proteins that grow us that enable us to make cells and enzymes and you know tissue and you know and, and 
on and on hair nails just just all of us all of all of who we are is coded into our dna um whether a particular gene is on or not is dependent on the cell type um, the needs of the cell and um is regulated again by all of the biochemical marks that are happening at the epigenetic level. So certain genes will be on, certain genes will not be on. So I, I guess I could give you an example. Um, so, so the D DNA is consistent throughout our body, regardless of the cell type. Um, in a liver cell, the region of DNA that will be turned on is associated with the needs of the liver cell. You know, a retinal cell. Likewise, uh, you don't need the genes associated with liver function to be turned on in the retina. Um, and so those are hypermethylated and shut down, you know, brain cell different. So we all, so our cells specialize, even though we have the same DNA, what we allow to be turned on and, and what's shut down um, consistently varies from cell type to cell type. And that's done via epigenetics. I guess I, you know, without I'm I'm probably going to get a little bit confusing here, but so some um, epigenetic changes, so some DNA methylation isn't going to change cell division after cell division. They're all that particular gene is always going to be shut down. A liver cell will not become a retinal cell, no matter you know how much you mess with yourself. <laughs> Thank God. Um, but as we'll get to what the biological age clocks show and what my research shows is that there are labile regions of the epigenome, things that we can turn on and off um, through our lifestyle choices. And I know we're gonna drill down. So to sum up, Chronological age is simply the number of birthday candles on your cake. Can't do anything about that. While biological age represents how fast your body is aging at the cellular level. Biological age is influenced by various factors, including the choices you make about how you live your life. Now, understanding biological age is crucial for making informed decisions about your health and lifestyle choices. And knowing your bioage can help you take actions to improve your health span and reduce the risk of chronic diseases associated with aging. Now, DNA methylation involves biochemical markers that attach to cytosines on the DNA that influence gene expression. Now, while that sounds complicated, it can be applied practically and simply using bio-age clocks like Dr. Fitzgerald's Younger You Biological Age Self-Assessment. At its core, true longevity encompasses the ability to live a long and quality life. It goes beyond the mere duration of life. It emphasizes the importance of the subjective experience of what it's like to be alive. Now, next up is Dr. Will Cole. Dr. Cole is a leading functional medicine expert named one of the top 50 functional and integrative doctors in the nation. He specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing a functional medicine approach for recovery. So here you have Dr. Will 
coal. So when people think of longevity, they think of a lifespan. And uh, there's plenty of people raising their hand quite confidently saying they're going to be 180 years old. Oh, yeah. Um, many of whom are my friends. <laughs> um, but uh, for me, I am not so concerned about lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I want to live a long, fruitful life if possible, but I'm way, way more concerned with health span. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about? health span versus lifespan. Yeah. I I think it's definitely important because when you look at people are living longer, right? And a lot of researchers, we are living longer as human because of the amazing benefits of modern science, but health span is not looking so good, especially for us in the West. So yeah, people are living longer, but they're not living the best quality of lives. So even, I remember years ago, I wrote an article. It was just it was an article about longevity and it was an article about what are different tools that people can do. And the title was how to live to a hundred or something like that. And the amount of comments I remember in the comment, I don't want to live to a hundred. I don't live. All these people, because they see the average older person out there and like, I don't want that. But, and that's, that's the kind of the state of affairs right now. It's like, there's very few really healthy older people out there. There's exceptions to that. But the quality of life is diminished. So I agree with you. It is uh, health span should be the name of the game as far as what our focus should be. And that's where we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And because, yeah, we're extending lifespan, but we don't have modern medicine doesn't really have the conversation on health span. But hopefully yeah, we can I mean, change last that. last 20 years of the average American's life, they're living with at least one chronic disease. Yeah. Generally, multi, multiple chronic diseases. Yeah on some sort of polypharma cocktail, yeah, right? right? With, with no research on what that cocktail is doing for them. Yeah, yeah. of how one particular yeah. pharmaceutical is, is impacting a, a different one that they might be taking. Yeah. And those clinical trials would be very difficult to right. run. Every to variable yeah. right under yeah. the sun, yeah. So, um, and there's a tremendous amount of suffering associated with that. And the suffering is obviously for the individual who you know has diabetes or has Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or cardiovascular disease, et cetera. But it's also a tremendous amount of suffering for the family mm-hmm. of that person or friends or caretakers. Mm-hmm. And then it also you know, takes a huge toll on society. And uh, you know, this is obviously about human suffering, but the economic toll is staggering. Yeah. You know, we're talking about $4 trillion annual sick care expenditures. Yeah. yeah. And if you start to play that out five, 10 years, mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking like $10, 20000000000000 trillion. Yeah. And so in a way, it's not, I think, you know, longevity and biohacking conference and stuff, a lot of it gets conflated with like this kind of like Silicon Valley male mm-hmm. chest pumping, yeah, yeah. chest pounding hero that's going to be amortal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but for me, I think this world has a lot more utility yes. around actually health span, yeah. lengthening health span. So when you're 85 or 90, maybe, you know, you were sick for the last couple of weeks, but you're pretty much just kicking off. You yeah. Know? yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's a life that I'd be much, I'd much prefer to live. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if people just did a fraction of what 
we've talked about in this episode or what we're, people are learning about this biohacking conference, the, the amount I think about that, the societal economic impact of that, it is bankrupting the West. Every Western country you can think of that that's dealing with this burden of disease. And I mean, I think the statistic is that the United States spends on healthcare more than the next the, the next 10, 10 top spending countries combined. Right. Yet we have the most disease and the shortest health span and lifespan of all industrialized nations. So it'd be one thing if we were spending all these trillions of dollars, I think, and then saving lives. But I don't think you can look at those statistics and say we're really doing well as far as chronic disease care. So while advances in modern science have enabled us to live longer, the quality of our lives, especially in the Western world, hasn't experienced that increase in tandem. The prevalence of chronic diseases and the associated suffering for individuals, families, and society at large highlight the urgent need to shift our attention to health span. By extending the years of good health and well-being, we can significantly improve the overall human experience and alleviate the immense economic burden placed on the healthcare system and also the human burden placed on families and communities. It's really time to prioritize health span as the true measure of longevity and work towards a future where individuals can enjoy vibrant and vital lives well into their golden years. So this last segment is from Serena Poon. Serena is a certified nutritionist, celebrity chef, Reiki master, and a wellness and longevity expert who shares some final practical tips for your own health span journey. So without further delay, here's Serena Poon. One of my questions around kind of the longevity movement is it definitely is very exciting for a lot of people, but how do we democratize that? How do we make it as accessible as possible to this kind of majority of people that are really limping through the last 16, 17 years of their life? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question and uh, and so important. And, you know, I'd like to address you know, the population from when we are young all the way to those to those years, you know, those last 16 to 20 years for some people. So they may be in their 60 to their 80s um, and beyond. What's amazing is that we've there's so much science now to back um, lifestyle choices that are absolutely accessible to everyone and anyone on the planet. Uh, you know, so much of what we can do to activate our longevity pathways, those genes are things that it's not just in the US, you know, we can do it anywhere. It can be caloric restriction. Um, we, there's so much talk about intermittent fasting. Um, you know, that's actually gonna save you money just... to, to do those, to exercise those lifestyle choices. Uh, and when it comes to things that we talk about a lot, you know, whether it's heat therapy or cold therapy. I mean, if you're near a body of water, it's free to jump in, you know? Um, if you are able to have a hot or cold shower, 
it's really simple to turn the dial one way or the other and stand there for a few minutes to activate, you know, that to activate those those pathways in our body. And that doesn't doesn't really cost a lot. So I really think that the best way to really democratize, as you say, is education. Mm-hmm. You know, it's letting people know that it's not as hard as you think it is, and it's totally accessible to you. You know, there's also how we breathe at that. And I'm so happy to to see this becoming more mainstream is the power of our breath. You know, we we breathe and we don't really think about it because we do it to exist. And we don't realize that controlling how we breathe, whether we breathe through our nose or through our mouth, how we hold the breath, uh, all of that is actually activating things in our body in a way that can really benefit us, benefit us if we know how. So, you know, hypoxia, for example, that's another, that's another lifestyle activity that we can do to activate uh, those pathways. And that's as simple as holding your breath. So really, you know, democratization of the ability to live longer and live well, um, I think boils down to education uh, and bringing that education to everyone, everyone starting at a young age, because we actually, you know, our children start to age as soon as they as soon as they meet us. Um, that's how our bodies function. So being able to teach that and teach these simple choices and eating well, of course, we can dive into that as well. You know, all of that is it's it's accessible. So as long as someone has the knowledge to make those choices. So what are adversity mimetics and um, why are they helpful? So so. Basically, you know, we talked about longevity pathways, right? And adversity mimetics are ways that we almost sort of trick our bodies to thinking that we are in a survival situation. There is there is an enemy, you know. Uh, it's an adversity type of stress as opposed to chronic stress, which I really want to continue to really differentiate. And that activates these pathways these genes in our body activates, um, you know, hermesis, which helps our body create these lo- longevity genes. So a mimetic would be some of the things we've already talked about. Uh, and some of them are ancient, as you say. So whether it's cold therapies that sort of shock to the body, the body thinks it's in danger and it releases, you know, activates these pathways, these cellular stress response pathways. Uh, the same thing can be done. Can I just ask you, would that be like a cold plunge or a Mm -hmm. cold shower? Are there any particular protocols that that you use in your own life or any kind of dosage or temperature tips or anything that you would be able to share with us? Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, personally, I don't love the cold. Me neither, (laughs) but I trained myself. Yes, and that's (laughs) and you're training your mind as well. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) You know, I travel quite a bit. So, you know, I would say just turning the shower to as cold as it gets and that whatever hotel room I'm in is probably as cold as it really gets for me. Uh, and, uh, and But that's just one way. You know, there's different ways to activate. That is one way. I used to uh, do cryo because I prefer dry cold to wet cold. Yeah. Uh, Again, you know, I'm not exercising my mental adversity mimetic <laughs> opportunities if I'm choosing cold, I'm dry over, over wet. But that's something you can do it for, you know, say 
two, three minutes. Some people sit much longer, of course. I, I wouldn't say longer is necessarily better. Uh, being able to sit in it for, for five minutes is great. Um, being able to sit in it in, for two minutes, it's great. Everybody's body is different. So it's really about how your body responds to those type of stresses. You're still activating. You don't need to worry about what it takes for Tom to activate his longevity pathways. You just kind of need to worry about your own, you know? So that's one way. Of course, there's heat stress. We talked about that. We talked about um, hypoxia, holding your breath. Uh, that's another way. And then of course, you know, there's there's molecules, you know, there's, there's um, anytime we can activate NAD, you know, there are polyphenols like resveratrol. There's different molecules that we can also uh, ingest. And that also, they also activate our sirtuins, you know, they activate some of these different pathways. Uh, they can inhibit mTOR, uh, they can activate AMPK. So these are all the different pathways and adversity mimetics or things that we can do lifestyle wise, um, things that we can eat, things that we can take supplementarily that activate those pathways. So adversity mimetics are modalities that simulate adversity or survival situations in the body. These practices essentially trick the body into thinking it is facing short-term acute threat, which in turn activates specific cellular pathways and genes associated with longevity and resilience. The good news is that there is a substantial body of scientific evidence supporting lifestyle choices that can activate these longevity pathways. These choices are pretty much accessible to just about anyone, regardless of location or economic status. Things like calorie restriction, intermittent fasting, exercise, heat therapy, and cold therapy. I call these protocols good stress. Now, if you have the resources, the sky is basically the limit on the various biohackery and interventions that you can apply to yourself. Now, you may have heard of the tech mogul Brian Johnson receiving an injection of the blood of his 17-year-old son in an experimental plasma exchange. I suppose the jury is still out on the effects of Brian's 45-year-old plasma on his 17-year-old son. But most of us aren't multi-millionaires with teenage sons willing to swap blood with us like some screenplay from an upcoming Cronenberg flick. So it's essential that we make these practices accessible to the majority of people, especially those who may experience health challenges in midlife or in their later years. So another crucial facet to longevity that wasn't featured in this episode is the importance of social connection and relationships. The community aspect to holistic health really cannot be understated which I suppose means we will need to make an episode on that topic. So stay tuned for that. Okay, if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss an episode. Leave a comment to let us know your thoughts and don't forget to share our content with others who might benefit from this valuable information. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno and I am here for you.